All right, if you have your Bibles, come with me to uh, John chapter 13 this morning, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together, whether that's we're worshiping at home or we're, we're physically here uh, this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. And as we uh, study your word uh, this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and Lord, that you'd give us some, some tools or some insights which we can um, apply to our life that would draw us closer to Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When we look at the time frame or the timeline for uh, chapter 13, we know we're about 12 hours away from Christ uh, giving, giving up his life uh, going to the cross, uh, dying for our sins. And we come to this um, second half of chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. And there's three little paragraphs here, three little kind of fancy words, three little pericopes, three little paragraphs, three little thoughts that have to do with with basically three situations. First situation is Judas. Jesus is going to release him, send him out uh, into the darkness to accomplish his betrayal. So that's one section of our text this morning. The second section is this whole issue of Christ giving a new commandment. And the third is Jesus answering Peter's questions, telling Peter where he's going to go. And to be honest with you, I've always struggled with this text um, and struggled with what is the right emphasis. And when we see this Jesus giving his disciples, a new commandment. It's, it's an imperative. It's a command. And I've kind of leaned uh, towards that a great deal about you must. You must love each other. It's, it's a command. And, um, and I've struggled with that because pastorally, to issue uh, commands to people seldom works <laughs> because people are, well, let's just say this, they're people. And as I've worked through the text again this week, I think I've found a little bit better balance in a sense of, of what can bring forth that love. And so what I'd like to do with the text is begin in the middle, okay, begin with verses 31 through 35. So we've already done two politically incorrect things already today. <laughs> uh, this is the second. So we'll take a look at 31 through 35 and then use, say, Judas and Peter to kind of dig down a little deeper on this. In other words, we'll use the the new commandment as a lens 
which to view these two men. And I think if we do it that way, we kind of get at a deeper level and maybe, at least for me, it was satisfying in directing my heart and walking in, in a way with Jesus that, that would produce this love. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with verse 31. Come there with me. When he had gone out, and so this is referring to the, to the second part that we'll get to, which, which starts in verse 18, talking about Judas. So Judas steps out and separates himself, and now Jesus just has the 11, just has the 11. And as soon as Judas steps out into darkness, Jesus says this. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And not only that, the Father, God, is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. (laughs) Now that's a lot of glory and a lot of glorified in a couple of verses. And if we parse that out a little bit, what we find is that Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of Man. And we've, we've heard Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus' favorite way of referencing to himself was the Son of Man. And that flows out of the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, speaking of the coming Messiah who would be exalted, which is what the word glorify means, exalted. And he uses the Son of Man because it's a title for Jesus and his and deity being incarnated, such a deep truth here, It's about the incarnation of God himself on earth, but after the resurrection, God himself where? In heaven, which is the Daniel 7 text. And so it's it's got two real meanings to it. When Jesus says that he is the son of man, he's completely saying God incarnate is in your midst. And so he begins by saying this, that he is, when Judas went out and he just had the 11, he says, the Son of Man is exalted and we need to unpackage it just a little bit more. That that exaltation is not what I would suspect. It's not majesty and power and might and position. Jesus has all those things, but he's referring to, and John does, attach his meaning that he's exalted and that exaltation comes as he suffers, as he's the suffering servant, as identified in the Isaiah passages, in the Isaiah Psalms, particularly Isaiah 53, that he's exalted through obedience to the Father's will to suffer and to die 
for your sins and my sins. And out of that context of servanthood and suffering, he is what? Glorified. And the Father who loves us and sent the Son is glorified as the Son completes the plan of redemption. Why is it so important to note that? Because all of the context of chapter 13 has been about what? Jesus serving the disciples by getting up from supper and going around and washing their feet until he gets to the rabble-rouser, Peter, who says, Woohoo! And if to be in the kingdom of God, so link it into the Beatitudes, chapter 5 of Matthew, to be truly exalted in the kingdom of God is to have, and we'll link it into Paul's theology, Philippians chapter 2, is to have the same mind, right, that is in Christ. That mind and that heart of being a servant and laying down your life for other people. That is Christianity at its core. And that is what differentiates us from all the other religions in the world. Is that we're not here to serve ourselves, we're not here to exalt ourselves, but our exaltation before God and the kingdom of God comes when we serve and we lay down our life for other people. And it is counterintuitive to everything that the world would offer and call for. So Jesus, when he had gone out, Jesus went out. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Verse 33. Verse 33 has never happened before in the Gospels. There's a reference. Now note, the one, the one Judas has gone out. He's gone. There once was 12. Now they're going to re- try to replace him. I'll leave that for another time. But there's just 11 And for the first time, Jesus calls them what? Calls them my little children. There's such a great depth to that because Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And this Passover meal is going to be what? It's going to be the table after Jesus is going to institute the Lord's table. And he calls them my little children and And when we read through the text, we're going to find out that at least Peter, he acts like a child. Laughter is usually a sign of, like, releasing anxiety. Because we all know we're like that, right? When I read the text, I say, oh, there you are, Ed. There's Peter. There's you. You don't understand things a lot of times. You question You know, you can be a real pain at times with your questions. Anyway, that's Paul. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Move on. So he says little children, but in the context of what's happening here, there's really kind of some really cool stuff. At the Passover meal, uh, we know the father uh, 
took charge of, of leading the ceremony. And we know that the children asked questions. And we know one of the questions that the children, a child would ask the first question, is what is the meaning of this night? And what we see here is an exchange between Jesus and the disciples, and they're kind of asking him, like, what's, what's the meaning here? What's going on? And Jesus is about to leave. Come back to the text. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And what Jesus is referring to here is the cross. They can't come. Because when we put the verses in context, and in John chapter 14, he's going to drill down a little bit more. Let your hearts not be troubled. Why? Because, because Jesus is leaving and they're, they're wigged out. They're distressed. And so Jesus isn't saying you could never get to me. And we'll see this in his dialogue with Peter. He's saying you can't go to the cross with me. And so right after this, he establishes the Lord's table and he gives a, a new command. He says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. Really? A new commandment? In 1406 BC, the children of Israel were positioned east of the promised land. They're looking at Jericho. God's going to take care of Jericho. Looking at the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in 1406, hundreds of years before this, the commandment's given to what? Love God and love your neighbor. So why is it new? It's fresh. But why? Because in, in Luke 22, remember from last week, Luke 22? What's the setup here? It's the Last Supper. And as Luke, Dr. Luke would put it, there arose among the disciples a dispute. And the dispute was what? Who would be the greatest? It's new because they, they, have never, they have never done it to the satisfaction of Jesus. It's new because they were focused on themselves. Jesus is leaving. Ours. He's going to be gone. What is the greatest, say, imperative that they need? And, getting excited here. And I only had two cups of coffee. What would happen if I had three? Yo, you've been there and it ain't good. <laughs> Jesus is leaving. What is the greatest plan of evangelism that he's going to deposit in their hearts? A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. My default in dealing with this text, I think was a little out of balance, a little off. Because as a pastor, I said, this is imperative, this is a command, you must love each other. Yet I've experienced a lot of unloving Christians. Have you had that same experience? I'm missing a few fingers, sheep bite. You know all the pastor jokes, right? It is true. And so the struggle I have internally is, where's the key? Where's the balance? Where, where's, the, where's the root that if that was nurtured would produce this and have great impact for the kingdom of God? these are my own thoughts they're not your thoughts hopefully this won't go viral and they'll send it to the Calvary Chapel big mucky mucks and get me in trouble but where's the thing that could be nurtured that would bring forth this rather than railing on it and I could and I have as a command and I've been disappointed I believe that when we look at Judas and we look at Peter, we get the answer to that. Because Peter definitely was a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Yet we're going to find out he was imperfect. And yet we're going to find out that eventually he got it. When we look at Judas, we come to that part of the text starting in verse 18 and I believe we get at least I get some greater insight into how to use a business term or whatever operationalize love in our midst how do we get that how do we see that grow and in the negative we see the negative in Judas what prevents it and we see the positive in Peter what nurtures it Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. So a thousand years before something happens, the Old Testament prophesies, looks to the future, and says this is going to happen. And this is only one of 25 to 30 that have to do specifically with Jesus Christ being betrayed and abandoned and sold out. And David writes this Psalm 41, verse 9, that Jesus quotes. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am language of deity. You drop down a few more verses. Jesus, in a sign of hospitality and honor, says to John, who leans into his bosom, says, 
tell me who it is. He's, Jesus said, when I take this morsel and dip it in the cup and I give it to him, he's the dude, right? Jesus tells them this before it happens that they might know that God is in control. Next verse is critical to bringing an understanding and a balance to how do we nurture this, this commandment, this imperative to love one another rather than, rather than you know, the pastor's like, you must. I mean, it is a command, it is appropriate, but like, how do you like grow that plant? Verse 20 is key. Truly, truly, I say to you. So that is that language of, of wake up. Pay attention. Right at this point in the sermon, it's a good thing. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's after... I'll, I'll cut to the chat. Stop getting. After 12 minutes, they start dropping like flies. <laughs> right? So Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Matthew 7 21 through 23. Not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The key here, the difference between Peter and Judas is quite simply that Judas had proximity to Jesus, spent three and a half years with him, ate meals with Jesus, so we know church potlucks don't save people. He watched the miracles, and it didn't faze him. He listened to the teaching, and had no effect. <laughs> so I guess that's an indirect encouragement to pastors today. The deal was, he never gave Jesus his heart. Never accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior so he could never love people. He was, he was destined to hell because of his selfishness. There is no command that can cause people to love people. I've tried it. There's no amount of arm twisting to cause people, well, why don't you, why don't, why don't you agape Agape is defined as, at least in my, my book, agape is defined like this. It's serving people when it costs you too much and too much time, and it always comes at the worst time. That, to me, is agape. No amount of cajoling or threatening or commanding can bring forth agape in people's lives. What does it? Regeneration, coming to faith, responding to the grace of God, responding to God's, God's grace by stepping into it by faith and receiving and applying 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his atoning work by faith in our hearts and our lives, it is the only thing that produces these outcomes. Look at John 15. John 15, and we're not going to cover it this morning because then I wouldn't have anything to cover in a couple weeks. <laughs> only kidding. It's all about abiding. It's all about nurturing the intimacy, having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, nurturing that relationship through the Word of God and through prayer and through fellowship with the saints, drawing your life from Jesus. And then when we get to verse 12, this is my commandment, that you do what? It's the new commandment again. He reiterates it again. At least Peter forgets. At least Conway skips over it. See, it is, the balance is not found in beating the sheep over this issue. The balance is found in how can we nurture each other's hearts to have passion and intimacy for Christ. And when we look at Peter, that's the difference. Peter Come to verse 36. Oh, let's finish out Judas. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And you know the narrative really well. John leans in, Jesus takes, and then he, then he, then he says to Judas, Go and do this thing quickly. One footnote I'd give you, and then we'll look at Peter. Luke 22, 47 through 53, is the synoptic account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they call the synoptic gospels because they, because they, look, they look through, they look at the life of Jesus through the same lens. John's really different. John comes later. John's had much more experience with the Lord. But in the Luke account... <laughs> All the disciples are like, is it me? Is it me? Am I going to betray you? And the one who knew he was going to betray him looks Jesus in the eye and says, oh, it ain't me. It ain't me, Lord. No, no. But he's the very one. A heart that is unconverted, a heart that is self-centered, can't love people. You know why? Because, I'll, I'll personalize it, I love myself more than I love people. And as long as I stay in that place, I'm in trouble. Because you cannot love, you, the evidence of loving God, the evidence of intimacy with God, John 15, is what? It's the evidence. The evidence of loving God is loving people. And so to nurture love in our hearts, to nurture love in our little church community that we have, is going to be found when we nurture our heart in Christ and find intimacy with him, which is going to be the John 15 text. Peter found that. 
Come, now we'll look at Peter. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, just like the children did at the Passover. He had a question. Just like the father, Jesus gives the answer. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. And here's the remarkable insight of what's going to happen to Peter. But you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can't I not follow you now? Is, can't you hear him? Ah! Like we just celebrated a, 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 a Grace's uh, uh, third birthday. All these little toddlers. It's like, how, 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 how do you survive? How, how did we actually survive that as parents? That's a, anyway. God's grace. Oh, there you go. God's grace. But that, that, you can almost hear that in Peter's voice. I want it. I want to know. <laughs> All right. Calm down. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. And what Peter stepped into was a human, zeal-based love. He, Peter said, I'll do to my own strength. And the lesson that comes out of Peter is we can do nothing in our own strength. And what, what Jesus lets Peter know is, Peter, you're going to experience brokenness. And Peter does that. You look later, 18, 19, 20. Peter says this, I've, I've publicly denied the Lord three times. There's nothing in me. So he says, the heck with the mission. I'm going fishing. You've got to read the Bible. It's like so practical. We do it all the time. The heck with the mission. It's one o'clock. Don't bother me until midnight. Because the NFL is on, right? Or the FIFA World Cup is on. Right? Anyway. And what does the Lord do to him? He reaches out to Peter. And he says, Peter, do you, and there's all kinds of theological gobbledygook around this, but to cut to the chase, Peter denied the Lord three times. The Lord asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Do I love you? Do you love me? And then he restores him. He says, good. Now in, that, in, that, now in your brokenness, you're not leaning into your own human zeal-based love. You're abiding in my love. You're abiding in my grace. And so now, go do what? Feed my sheep. The answer and the balance that I take away from the text, is there a commandment here to love one another? So everybody here is, say yes. Yes. <laughs> But how do we nurture that? 
Like, how do we nurture that, that plant? That, how do we nurture that in our heart? And that only comes through intimacy and brokenness. And in the midst of our brokenness, that is where the Lord comes. And he waters and nurtures that plant so that we love other people. First John chapter 4. We nurture that love because he first, can you finish it? Loved us. And out of that, being loved by the Father, having received the forgiveness of sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ, having been adopted by him, having been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his wonderful light, out of that nurtured soul and the love and beauty of Jesus Christ, we love other people because he first loved us. Amen. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table this morning.